and welcome to Mintcast episode 149, recorded live on February 18th, 2013. I'm Scott, and with me on the podcast, as always, is Rob. Hello, hello, hello. So, Mr. Rob, we have an 805.08 EST start time. What do you think about that? Ooh, hey, that's, that's uh, what, a minute ahead of last week? I think we're... We're still getting earlier every time, yeah. It's a PR, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It's continuous improvement. That's what I'm talking about. So besides continuous improvement, what uh, what have you been doing for the last week? Well, I got my new uh, computer in, so uh, got that kind of set up, and it seemed like I had stuff going on every night afterwards. So it sat in the box for a couple of nights, and then I got it out and stuck it up on the desk and plugged it in and turned it on to where it would run. And then didn't have any time to look at it. And so it was uh, several days afterwards before I finally got it set up and, and organized. And, and then I have forgotten. I, I do this every time. I forget, um, how much time it takes to get a Windows box back to where you can use it again. Cause this uh, notebook that I've been dual booting for so long, it's been, you know, I've, I've been using it for five or six years now. And you accumulate a lot of cruft on it. And so most of that cruft, of course, doesn't exist on the new box. Um, so Bill M.I. is asking, is it uh, UEFI? Uh, no, uh, not UEFI. Uh, I, I deliberately went and found a, uh, uh, I think it must be an older, um, it was on sale anyway, on the HP website uh, with Windows 7 Home Professional on it. Home that doesn't sound right. Home. Yeah. Anyway, the, the Windows 7 one. So, because uh, I didn't want 8 on it. Um, so, and it, it runs great. So, I haven't done anything spectacular with it other than I finally installed Mass Effect and Mass Effect 2 off my Steam account, which I bought about two years ago and then couldn't run on, on the notebook because of the graphics driver. So, I installed that and... and uh, played with it a little bit and um yeah i think they do have a home professional i think it's a it's the it's the uber home one anyway and then there's a there's a business one too but anyway um and then got ddo installed on it of course and it's it's really cool to be able to when you go from a really old graphics card playing a game on a really old graphics card that sort of just barely runs on the low settings. And then this thing I, I fired up, and this has not got an Uber graphics card. It's a GT630, 2 gigabyte GT630. And uh, so I fire this thing up and uh, tell it, okay, you know, just run whatever you want. Well, it sets everything to ultra high, full screen, 10, uh, 20 by 1080, and it just... I can see the little blades of grass moving as I walk by. And I walk out into the water and the ripples all walk away. It's very, very cool. Uh, so I didn't actually play much. I just sort of walked around and looked at things. So that's kind of what I've been doing all week is is fiddling with that a little bit. We had uh, our uh, men's uh, men's burgers or books and burgers uh, last night. So we were, I was reading a book called Jack's Life by uh, Douglas Gresham, which is the life story of C.S. Lewis. 
Hmm. Uh, interesting story. Jack Gresh or Douglas Gresham rather is his uh, adopted son. I don't know how much you know about C.S. Lewis, but uh, not a ton. He, uh, yeah, so he met a uh, um, a lady late in life uh, who died shortly after they met. Anyway, and so she had grown up kids and everything, and so this was one of her kids that wrote the book. So really a good book. Anybody who's a C.S. Lewis plan. Um, a C.S. Lewis fan, go uh, pick it up. It's called Jack's Life. So interesting book. So anyway, that it's uh, this men's group that gets together from the church that uh, we call it Burgers and Books, and it's uh, it's kind of light on the light on the book and heavy on the burgers, which is the way so, it should be. I thought you right, were going to yeah. say it was light on the burgers, and then that no, would, no, light on the book, heavy. Would be wrong. In fact, about half the people who come uh, will have cracked the book open. And of that half, maybe a third will have gotten more than halfway through the book. So it's cool. Yeah. So, yeah, GT630 is an NVIDIA card. Uh, and after uh, listening to uh, to Scott talk about the woes of uh, the ATI, because I was looking at a Radeon uh, 7570, I think is what uh, came with the, the box stock, Um and then thought, eh, well, I'll go with the NVIDIA chip because my uh, long-term goal with this is I'm going to, uh, I've got a one and a half terabyte, terabyte uh, uh, internal drive sitting around here uh, that I haven't had a SATA port on a computer on and since my old one died. So I've been able to use it. So I'm going to stick that in and that will be, uh, it'll dual boot into something or other, whatever the flavor of the week is. So we'll see, because I want to get, you know, I may put Mint Main Edition on because I want to get Steam installed on it and uh, have a look at that, uh, the Steam on Linux. As well you should. Yes, because it, I couldn't run it on the, on. well, I, you know, maybe I could. No, I probably can't run any of the games anyway on the my main, on this notebook. Uh, that we're we're podcasting on. Maybe this will just become my podcast mule. Hmm. So anyway, long rambling discourse on that to say not much went on. It's enough. Yeah. <laughs> so myself, I um, I actually went to a land party on Saturday. I think I mentioned it before on the oh, podcast. Oh, this is the land party that was coming. Yeah. Yep, How did yep. that go? It was a lot of fun this time. I, I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, my daughter went with me and, um, we, we had a good time. It was definitely fun. We played a little bit of fear, a little bit of uh, call of duty two, which is still a really nice looking game considering they've gone through, I don't know how many additional versions of call of duty. Uh, yeah. I don't know. How old is that? It It's still, I can't, I can't remember, but it still looks good and it's got good gameplay. It's a lot of fun. And so we played that, uh, we played a little unreal tournament and we left just as they were starting to play Rune, which is another old one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was kind of glad we left because my friend, who's a pretty avid gamer, was struggling uh, to get the view right. And just as he would run around, it was just it was it's sort of a third person view. Yeah. And uh, he was having real trouble controlling his uh, his character. So I was glad we were leaving when that went on. I, oh, yeah. We definitely enjoyed. Uh, Fear was a lot of fun, and um, and Call of Duty too was was great. So so it was definitely a good time. My daughter had one um, 
one map where she uh, was a sniper and she had 40 kills, which is, uh, <laughs> for her, that's just, I think it's her, um, I think that was a, a high. So the interesting thing so, was. So are those massively multiplayer or are those no, just uh, on the local LAN? Local LAN. Local LAN, okay, first-person cool. shooters. We had about, um, there were about 16 or 18 of us there. So there were wow. a lot, lot of people there. So it was, uh, was a good time. But um, the interesting thing was uh, the the podcasting box, the box we're streaming on here, uh, is right. the is the secondary gaming box had a Windows part Windows Seven partition on it, and uh, okay. And so as we were uh, transferring games around, you know, sometimes you have to get, you know, somebody says, oh, you got uh, Call of Duty two, and you won't have it, so we've got cut and paste copies that you can have just for playing on the LAN, and you know they won't work even in single player mode, uh, and then you know basically you delete them when you're done. But uh, we were copying them onto the podcasting box for my daughter, and uh, we ran out of space. And so we uh, this box actually has two two di- uh, drives in it. It's got a uh, I think it's a sixty gig SSD, and then it's got a two hundred gig data drive. And so we were out of space on the SSD. So went over to the data drive, and there are a few partitions out there. And um, I just made the assumption that those were all data partitions. And Oops. couldn't read them because they were XT4, so I couldn't read right. them booted into Windows 7. So yep. I decided that, uh, well, we need some space, so let's just clear those out. <laughs> so I deleted a few partitions and, um, you know, went and played and had fun. I think Co- I know where this Copied down a bunch of games. Got home, uh, you know, fairly late Saturday night, so just, you know, threw the box upstairs in the office and didn't hook it up or anything. So yesterday I... Um, had some things I wanted to do. I hooked up my main box, and then I hooked up the uh, the podcasting box and um, pressed go, the power button. And <laughs> nope, nope, <laughs> nope, nope. Grub Grub was gone. Not only was not only was yeah, not only was Grub gone. I don't know where. I don't know which partition actually held. Um, even the um, the Artis X install that we use as our as our streaming box. So Whoa, this is serious. Man. Yeah. So I was in a little bit of a panic. Uh, I was I like, guess. okay, we got to we got to go live in thirty six hours. Hours and <laughs> yeah. and this is a a handcrafted, custom created solution that has been building for yeah several weeks now that you've been working on this. So you know? the so the happy ending is that uh, and you and I had talked about this, you know, working on this next weekend so that we we yeah. both have similar setups. I was able to rebuild the box in about three and a half hours. Hours. And wow! Um, unless you guys can't hear me, which I think you can, everything appears to be working, and it's much cleaner now because I uh, it, there's no Windows Seven. I wiped everything, and uh, uh, okay, so it's just the Artist X on there now. Yep, just the Artist X. Actually, I didn't mm-hmm. wipe the data drive, so that still has the Windows partitions on it, and and a couple of games, as a matter of fact. But uh, <laughs> um, the uh, I I partitioned the uh, sixty. I think it's 64 gig SSD and I partitioned it off to about 30 gigs for this RSX um, install. And then you and I had talked about open artist and maybe trying to, uh, to yeah. build a podcasting box with that. So I, I wanted to be able to dual boot if that's the case, but um, I, the nice thing was I was able to record all my notes as I was going through. And I think if, when you and I oh, sit down next good, weekend, yeah. we'll be able yeah. to, uh, we'll be able to get you up and running in no time. So, Cool. So that was my cool. excitement for yeah. the weekend. Yeah, that oh, was uh, yes. 
I was like I said, I was in a little bit of panic yesterday morning. So yeah, not the way you would have set up to do that if you'd been paying attention, right? Yeah, no, it, that was that was a typical one where you go, oh, I can't read that partition; must be useless. Let me blow it away. I can't believe I just did that. Yeah, and, yeah. and it was actually a triple boot box. I think we had, I think I had um, a mint uh, partition on this, plus the uh, Artist X and uh, Windows Seven, and so now it's just oh, just wow. Artist X. So, anyways. That was interesting my, yeah, fun that was games. Fun yeah you yeah. had more fun than i did this week then yeah and actually i had a i had a bunch of work uh that i had to do because we actually as we started going through you know you guys may recall last episode episode 148 we only had a few news stories and even after the show rob and i were joking about the fact that it was a really uh dry news week last week in the in the floss open source world well this past week uh thinking that it was going to be the same I went out and started putting the show notes together and just kept running across story after story. And so got another one, got the, another, got one. another got one. It's another crazy. One. Uh, so tonight we are going to be talking about all the things that have happened in the last week in the Flosk world. So that is going to be uh, basically our main topic because there's just so much to talk about here. Plus, um, as you guys are probably aware, we've been getting uh, tremendous, uh, tremendously detailed and well thought out feedback. And we're going to share some of that with you. Uh, at the towards the end of the show, so um, I'm going to play you some music, and we're going to get into the news. Awesome. So the first thing we're going to talk about actually is an email that we received from uh, Corbin. You guys may recall Corbin. It, helped us out on a couple of times with some co-hosting. And he had actually written an email to Clem um, probably three or four months ago, actually, asking him a series of questions and just seeing if Clem would respond. And Clem actually is a busy guy. So he just got around to actually responding to Corbin's email. And uh, as the nice guy that Corbin is, he went ahead and sent out our way. And we're going to share some of Clem's answers with you. thought this was a little bit interesting. Uh, so the first question he had is, um, in the in the last few releases of Linux, uh, or in the upcoming releases of Linux Mint, do you plan on just using Mate or Cinnamon or merge them into the same ISO? And Clem answered, both are very important to us, and both will have their own additions. Then he asked, uh, do you enjoy living in Ireland? Any complaints or praises? Clem answered, yes, I love it. Other than the food, weather, communications, transport, services, and public amenities. <laughs> I mean, other than all that, it's pretty good. People are great, and that matters more than anything else. Cool. And then he asked them, uh, did you ever use Microsoft Windows or Mac OS? And Clem responded, yes. It's important for me to know what other projects do. So I've got every OS and every gadget you can think of. I don't use Mac OS for anything else than checking how they do this or that maybe once or twice a year. And I use Windows to play a few games which run, which only run in Windows. And so Corbin asked him, well, what OS did you run before your creation of Linux Mint? And Clem says, I used Mandrake, Debian, and Ubuntu a bit, but my main distribution was Slackware. So then he asked, uh, what's your opinion on Windows 8 UI, Unity, and GNOME Shell? And uh, Clem answered, I think they're great niche products for casual computer users. It's pretty subtle there. Hmm, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he asked, do you have another job or is Mint your life? And Clem answered, I work full-time on Linux Mint and more. Hmm. 
so mint and cinnamon and everything else, I guess. Yeah. 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 Uh, so then he went on to ask, uh, how did you come up with the icon? And Clem responded, it was designed by Carlos Porto. We had a long conversation about it. I love it personally. Looking at it from afar reminds me of Thai scripting, a country I really like. And the link between the L and M represents the constant evolution of the project and efforts we make at continuously improving it. Um, so Corbin asked him, uh, what part of Mint are you most proud of? Uh, Clem said, I'm proud of everything we do, but I'm really thankful for our community and the fun we're still having making it. Uh, and so Corbin finished up with, uh, you excited for Steam on Linux? And Clem says, of course. So that, uh, I think that, that, uh, was a pretty good interview. Yeah, Bill M.I. sums it up nicely in the chat. Say, that eh, good interview. So I thought he asked some good questions. And and uh, so it's good to, to kind of get some thoughts from Clem on, on what it, what was going on in his mind. Yeah, he didn't ask him um, any, like, if you were a tree type questions, which I, yeah. which I was looking for. So Oh, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? Yeah. 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 I so, speak for the trees because they have no voice of their own. There it is. So we're going to move on to uh, to some uh, some hard news here. The first story we have is that the um, Python trademark is at risk in Europe. So this story is actually came out of the Python Software Foundation uh, on their blog, and uh, they're asking for people's help uh, in Europe, uh, basically because there is a company called Weber.co.uk or Pobox.co.uk that actually uh, grabbed the Python.co.uk domain quite some time ago, about 13 years ago. And at that time, um, the Python folks weren't really looking at, at uh, domain and trademark issues, so they didn't try and get it back or you know go after them with cyber squatters or anything. And so for the last 13 years, that uh, anything that you, any the, the Python.co.uk would redirect to the main websites of Weber.co.uk. Uh, well, now they're coming out. They just actually came out and said that uh, they've decided to start using the Python name for their server products. They must be a tech company. Um, when I tried to go to their website today, I couldn't get there. So I don't know if um, if somebody's uh, DDoS them or something. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that in just a second. But uh, what happened is the Python Software Foundation actually um, tried to contact them and uh, discuss the matter and see if they could come to some kind of arrangement. But um, Bieber basically blew them off and filed a trademark application, a community trademark application, claiming the exclusive right to use Python for software servers and web services everywhere in Europe. So um, everybody's lawyered up now, and the Python Software Foundation uh, has been, you know, is is trying to um, get uh, get ownership of this this trademark, and so what they're going to need to do is um, they're looking for help from people to basically establish. Let's see here. So, according to our London Council, some of the best pieces of evidence we can submit to the European Trademark Office are official letters from well-known companies using Python branded software in various member states of the EU, so that we can obtain the independent witness statements from them attesting to the trade origin significance of the Python mark in connection with the software and related goods and services. So they've, it, we're going to have a link in the show notes. Uh, if you are a, um, if you're in the EU, so are you in the EU? Do you hire in the EU or do you have an office in the EU? And if you're, if you meet any of those, 
you would probably want to uh, head on out to this website and see what you can do to help them out so that they can actually retain the Python trademark. My understanding is this this only affects uh, users in Europe right now, but um, you know obviously it's not a good it's not a good thing, and we would want to help them out if we could. Yeah, and I think that this company is going to have trouble um, trademarking um, things that where the where it's been in such common use uh, for so long in uh, Europe. So they're not going to be able to trademark it. Now they may be able to. Um, trademark or or to grab onto the mark in in terms of hardware or servers or things like that where and because i think that's the way these things normally go as long as there's no danger of confusing the consumer then they'll they'll go ahead and grant them so they couldn't call another piece of software python i don't think well and that's what they're they're trying to that's what they're trying to do yeah yeah. well that's what the python uh, software foundation wants is basically people to attest to the fact that it would be confusing if in fact yeah this company was granted the trademark so one of the things that i I touched on very briefly there was a this blog we're going to link you to the blog post up on the python software foundation news uh blog site the very next uh blog post that came out was um please practice civility in in these manners uh yeah because i think um there were some threats that went uh out to this company and obviously we want to conduct ourselves in a in a um in a manner that represents the community in a, in a positive light so uh, well yeah so don't be doing juvenile yeah. type things and and making the situation worse than it is yeah exactly yeah it's a serious situation so yep Interesting. Well, our next story uh, comes back around to something that we've talked about uh, often on a couple of times, uh, the Linux-based Tizen release. So it has hit uh, version 2.0, officially hit 2.0. It's been kind of cooking around for a little while. Um, it's, uh, uh, well, it's based on Linux. It's kind of a, a system that's designed to run HTML5 apps on phones and tablets and in-vehicle systems like that. Um, there aren't actually any Tizen-powered devices on the open market just yet. But Samsung, Samsung's reportedly working on a number of devices that would be based around the open source OS. So the interesting thing about this is, um, is this going to run on phones would be the, the issue. Um, you know, it doesn't just because Samsung's working on it doesn't mean that uh, that anything is ever going to come of it. And they would be interested in it because if they were shipping on Tizen, they can control more of the way that the the operating system works than they can even with Android. Um, but you know, it's it's kind of hedging its bets and and looking for different ways to to make sure it can protect itself from. Um, you know, the rest of the big boys in, in the business. And that, the issue for these guys is that if they get too dependent on uh, Android and if if Google starts to get serious about uh, hardware or about uh, pulling funds through the, the, uh, uh, the Google Play Store, um, then the hardware manufacturers end up in a squeeze play. And so I think that's Samsung's probably looking to to kind of protect themselves from that sort of thing. So, but the the real question is, well, so what would happen if Samsung were to say, well, 
we're going to just make all of our mobile devices are going to run Tizen instead of Android. Um, how much does that hurt Android? Uh, certainly, it doesn't hurt Apple at all. They'd, they'd love it. Um, I'm not sure that it would be particularly, well, it would not be good for Android. Um, and it might kind of knock them back a bit. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But, um, you know, Bill's mentioning in the in the chat that the Tizen's Intel, Samsung, and Linux Foundation, you guys may recall, it's sort of the evolution of, of Mego, which was Intel and, and MIMO no, and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. You know, MIMO was Nokia. Then Mego was Nokia and Intel. And then Nokia went the Win 7 or Win Phone 8 or whatever route. And now... Uh, you know, we talked about Tizen a little ways back and people were sort of like, ah, nothing will come of that and um, poo-pooing the idea. And so it's interesting to see that they're reaching 2.0, they've got an SDK, and that Samsung is is very much interested in um, in seeing something, you know, seeing the fruition of this this effort. So we were talking a little bit about it before, and I think it would be a big deal if if Samsung were to bring to market products that had Tizen on them because Tizen is a much more pure Linux play than Android is. Um, And at that point, if Samsung, who is the largest manufacturer of mobile devices in the world, were to start shipping Linux devices or devices with a Linux operating system, then as I was saying to you in the pre-show, Rob, it's it's sort of like that's that's the holy grail right there. That is, uh, you know, now we've got, um, you know, it's not just like a, a Kobe or, you know, Nakamichi or, you know, some, you know, backwoods Taiwanese uh, manufacturer who's put, pushing out a Linux device. We're going to get to a couple other stories coming up, but I think th- this is really a big deal if this, in fact, were to come to pass and, and Samsung were to bring products to market. Yeah, so the, do you think it would actually hurt the the signet? Well, if it would depend, I guess, if people, it would depend on what it looked like because, you know, Samsung can't afford to just jump out and take something that that the market has come to like quite a bit, the Android environment, and just sort of replace it with something that is not at least as functional. I think they'd phase it in, and I think you'd see the functionality would be greater. But, it, yeah, it would be very interesting because what's it going to look like? What are they going to do with it from a support standpoint yeah. um, to minimize, you know, or to avoid having – Massive support from the the mon pa type of crowd that that wants a simplistic um, device or wants a device that that doesn't require you know as hobbyists yeah. we we you know start salivating when people start talking about this stuff but um, it'd be very interesting to see if they could they could um, you know have it have it uh, skinned or or uh, present in a very simplistic fashion but you could get under the covers and do a lot more with it so anyways yeah. we'll we'll keep our eye on that interesting yeah. Yeah. Our next story actually is uh, about the Opera web browser um, and the story that Opera, the Opera uh, company came out this week and said that they are going to switch their um, their support to the Chromium project and switch to WebKit as their um, as their as their engine. So Opera for uh, a long time, Opera has actually been in business since about 1995, and they actually developed their own um, turbo uh rendering engine and their own JavaScript uh, processor. And now they're going to switch to Chromium and to WebKit. And so um, it's kind of a big deal in the sense that they already, they've already started laying off people uh, to, to kind of slim down the, the core department there. 
at at opera but um where it's going to be beneficial my feeling is where it's going to be beneficial for the general user someone who uses webkit or uses chromium or even the chrome browser is that they are going to have a number of people uh quite a few they actually have about 800 people on staff they had about 900 and they're letting go or reassigning about 90 of those people but uh they're going to have people uh, dedicated to um coming up with uh with uh uh, smartphone browsers, tablet browsers, and then also improving the the desktop browser. And they're actually um, going to be debuting their first uh, smartphone browser for Android at um, the Mobile World Congress trade show later this month in Barcelona. So they're already they already have some um, R and D projects that they've been working on with regards to WebKit as they've looked in this direction. So you know some people may think this isn't really relevant. Um, you know, think about Opera as a browser, it's sort of, you know, their market share is pretty small. But um, you guys may recall, especially our European friends, that Opera was one of the first companies that that was on the forefront of the antitrust um, and anti-competition lawsuits against Microsoft and against IE back in 2007. So, um, you know, a lot of us, the, the sort of the freedom that you have on the um, you know, with regards to the browsers and the and the leveling of the playing field uh, in the browser wars and sort of the, the 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 basically the Stalingrad of the browser wars was this this lawsuit in the EU that forced Microsoft to um, to allow the choice and to decouple IE from from the operating system and allow people to use other browsers on their uh, on their boxes. So um, I think we all you know we all have a little bit of we owe a little debt of gratitude to to Opera. Uh, from that point of view, and um, they've always had a great uh, mobile browser. I actually use them on my uh, on my tablet as a browser. So, yeah, that's where I I ran into them as well as is on the I think it was on a phone I had I um, I ran an Opera browser. Um, I wonder, you know, you said that they're kind of throwing their well, they're going to WebKit, and I had heard that as well, but I hadn't heard that they were throwing their um, support behind Chromium. Yep. And that seems a little bit odd because Chromium is a browser and Opera is a browser. And so are they going to become Chromium? Are they going to be I would, a derivative I would imagine they're going, they going to be to Chromium as Chrome is to Chromium. They're going to be a, a product that, you know, is in essence, they're going to put some proprietary stuff in there. They're going to, you know, Chromium. They're going to skin it with yep. Opera. It's going to look and smell like Chrome, but or Chromium, but it's going to be an Opera branded Chromium. Yeah, I think under the covers hmm. it's going to be Chromium, but what you're going to see is not going to look like Chrome. So yeah, I worry about getting rid of a whole browser platform like that because you know that that's and that's, that's yeah that's a little bit of the yeah. fallout. People are talking about you know now we're you know everybody's on WebKit except for uh, Firefox. Firefox, yeah, which is Gecko. So, um, you know, what's yeah. where does that leave us? Yeah. But hard to say. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. And then, of course, there's Microsoft with their mm -hmm. thing that that uh, only is used at work, as far as I can tell. So, yep. So, speaking of Microsoft, there was this uh, story circulating. Uh, oh, I don't know, a week or so ago, that they were looking at. Uh, it was a rumor. Um, actually, it wasn't even a story. Uh, that they were looking at porting Office to Linux. And, you know, it sounds plausible because they're casting about looking for uh, for additional uh, um, revenue and stuff. Um, and so why not go to Linux? 
so uh, Stephen J. Von Nichols uh, comes out with a, a post here uh, on ZDNet. Uh, I was a good source of information. Um, and he says, um, if you believe this story that Microsoft might be porting Office to Linux, um, I have a wonderful, lightly used bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you for a mere million dollars cash. Um, so, you know, he goes on and says, well, uh, the byline is uh, there's a rumor that Microsoft will be bringing Office to Linux. That will happen when pigs fly. So I'm guessing he's not thinking this is very likely. Um, is it technically possible, he says? Sure, you can run it on Linux today using Wine or, or um, Codeweaver's crossover Linux. Um, runs just fine. In fact, Office is often one of the uh, the test cases for these things. So, and that's not what this rumor was about. The rumor was about running natively on, on Linux. Um, and the issue is, um, you know, could they do it and would they do it and why would they? Um, we, I think, as Linux users like to think that we're a big part of the market and that Microsoft needs to pay attention um to us and the fact is um this is not probably in microsoft's best best interest to do it um stephen j von Eichels says uh i uh my friends at microsoft yes i have some tell me they'd never heard of such an effort they can't believe that anything like that is afoot uh indeed there's even now a lot of doubt about office for the ipad appearing and it, that looked like a sure bet not too long ago so and the the ipad has it's got to have thousands of times more users as uh, Linux desktop. So anyway, he did some digging into this and and found out that it came from a single Pharonix report, which is, I think, the one we picked up on last week, that said from a source in Brussels, Belgium, during the free open source software development, developers European meeting, that FOSDEM meeting this past weekend, I was informed. Uh, so, yeah. That one person uh, on uh, made a comment, and yeah, so the, the I think this is one of those wishful thinking kinds of things. Um, so uh, von Nichols c- concludes by saying, "When I need an office suite on Linux today, I use LibreOffice. Till I hear oinks from the sky as the piggies fly north for the spring, I don't believe I'll be running Microsoft Office natively on my Linux desktop anytime soon." So interesting, uh, interesting take on on where uh, those guys are going. The uh, the other Microsoft Office story that we've got. Uh, this is uh, turning into the Microsoft Office uh, podcast, but in any case, uh, the retail copies of Office 2013 uh, are flying around and. Uh, so that with the with that launch, Microsoft apparently has seen fit to upgrade also the terms of the license agreement, uh, and it's not in favor of users. Yeah. So it, what it seems like is that installing a copy of the latest version of the Office Suite ties it to a single machine for life. So that's an interesting way to license software uh, because. It uh, means that, you know, if your machine dies, you go get a new computer, you can't take that Office 2013 with you. You've got to go buy another license, which, again, is tied to the same uh, machine. And I guess this has been confirmed by uh, a couple of reporters um, when trying to, to move um, from one, co- one machine to another. Um, it 
sort of makes it like the with the Windows OEM license. Uh, you get one chance to use it on a single piece of hardware. Um, the interesting thing about this, I think, is that, you know, while the cost of, of Windows has been coming down, uh, Office is a, a staggeringly expensive uh, product. And, you know, it's like four or five hundred bucks. And so the notion that I, I'm basically buying it for two or three years, um, because that's when, you know, that's how long I'm, I'm gonna actually use this hardware. Um, it really looks abusive. And of course, uh, they're doing this for a reason, as is most true with most license or most, most Microsoft things. They really want people on to, uh, they're moved, they're trying to push the world towards a subscription model for, uh, their software licenses. And that's what Office 365 is. Uh, you don't buy a single copy. You just buy this Office 365 and it's tied to the user. The problem is that you can't buy it. You end up, uh, you're, what you're paying for is a, you're, you're paying like a, an annual, I think, subscription. Um, so you pay them every year for the thing. And so true that you don't have to worry about ever buying it again. But you buy it over and over and over again. So um, it's an interesting play. Uh, you know, Microsoft as a as a software company has got to figure out how to um, you know sustain their revenue. And I think what they're finding is that fewer and fewer people are all that interested in buying a new copy of Office every time it comes out. And so they're looking for some way to get people. Uh, interested and if you can move your your office from machine to machine then that's clearly you know they're they're finding it hard or impossible to put enough new stuff into office each time to cause people to upgrade and i think the fundamental problem for microsoft is that there's you know the office and products like it pretty much do most everything you need that kind of product to do and so they can't think of any new features to put in. What they really need to do, in my humble opinion, if I were Microsoft, is they need to find some new kind of software to write that doesn't exist yet uh, and start to do some innovation and don't do so much just pumping out a couple of extra features and adding a ribbon. And, and I figure next time they're going to take the ribbon away and add... Well, what button bars down the right hand side? That's a yeah, that's a good idea right there. Well, what they'll do is they'll put in a charm bar that'll be um, oh, totally hid, totally hidden. So all the <laughs> controls will be hidden. If you know which side of the screen to drag your mouse to, you'll be able to see that, and then you'll then you'll be able. Well, to... you'll you'll have to go to the left side, then the right side, then the left side, and yeah. then the left side, and it'll pop up. Yeah. One one thing you have to look at in this whole discussion is just what a cash cow that Office has been for Microsoft. It's been one of their most profitable pieces of software for years and years. And so letting go of that is is not an easy thing and and It's like drugs. Yeah. Yep. You got to replace it with something and and that's hard to do. When when Office came out, um it was really revolutionary in terms of what it was because up until then and most of uh, many of our listeners, I shouldn't say most, many of our listeners probably weren't alive when this happened. But up until then, you had complete balkanization of all of these these tools. Nothing worked together. You had WordPress and, and Lotus 1, 2, 3 and DBase, and they didn't talk together. They just kind of 
were were all separate applications and and office was this notion that all this stuff could could be together it was very innovative and that's about the end of it it hadn't been innovative since then and you can milk that for a while but come on guys you got to think of something new to do yeah so speaking of stuff that isn't new uh, it came out just about a week ago um that Google, or in specifically Chromium or Chrome, is uh, has been identifying uh, systems, Linux systems, as being obsolete. So basically, what this all started when uh, Jan Vildebor, who's a um, Red Hat evangelist, found that uh, Google Chrome wasn't updating on his uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux six box anymore, and he was actually getting a message that. Um, a notification that said Google Chrome is no longer updating because your operating system is obsolete. So he posted this on his Google Plus page and you know, said, well, you know, stuff like what, why is uh, Red Hat 6 considered obsolete while uh, uh, Google Chrome is continuing to support Windows XP, which is which is a good question, but it's probably the install base has a lot to do with that. Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, this went, this kind of made the rounds for a little bit. People were kind of wondering what was going on. And um, they, uh, after digging a little bit, it was discovered that uh, that um, Chromium developers are actually trying to. They actually prefer the new C plus plus eleven code base versus the C plus plus the older C plus plus standard libraries. And so uh, you have distros like um, like Rel six that have the older library and an older version of the GCC, the the new compiler. Uh, so they need because uh, there's a new tool chain that you need for the C plus plus eleven um, version of C plus plus. But anyways, uh, so that um, there was a little bit more digging. This kind of got back to to Chrome, uh, the Chromium people, and uh, it turned out there's sort of a bad choice of of you know an explanation, a bad notification, um, you know, choice of language for the notification. What the what Chromium is doing is it's actually using, or Chrome is actually doing, is it's using your GTK version to determine the age of your uh, your distro and whether they consider it to be old and will whether they'll continue to support it. So if you have a GTK version that is earlier than 2.24, and you'd find that on RHEL 6, um, Lucid, uh, Ubuntu Lucid, so that's 10.04, which is an LTS and is still supported, um, Debian 6 2.20, um, then your system will be marked as deprecated and you'll now get a message that says Google has stopped updating and no longer supports this version of your operating system. And I think it's after version, uh, it, they won't, after version 26, Chrome 26. So I don't even know what version of Chrome we're on now. They, they update like, I don't know, I go to bed tonight, I'll wake up, it'll be a different version tomorrow morning. But um, they, uh, as a version uh, Chrome version 27, those those older versions of Linux, the ex- existing version of Chrome will continue to work, but it won't be updated. And uh, this is a decision they've made because of that tool chain that they need uh, for C plus plus 11. So and and the need for uh, GCC 4.6 or later. So uh, interesting interesting that this came up. Um, if you have an older version, I think Chromium is a, is affected as well. Because this is the Chromium yeah, developers. It's the, same. it's the root stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the it's the build requirements of Chromium that are are affecting this. So if you're on um, any newer version uh, of Linux, you're probably fine. 
but uh, I think earlier than uh, 10.04 or earlier, you might be you might get this message from uh, from Chrome or from Chromium. So, uh, Scott, this is a challenge for the the IRC. Um, there's a a sed command that will tell me which version of GTK I've got, right? There must be. Well, um, what do I grep to find that? Uh, I don't know offhand. That's a good. That's a good. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. Uh, a good challenge. I don't know. <laughs> that probably would have been. Either. I did some other it's homework in, for this this episode. I didn't do that. Yeah, I didn't do that. It's got to be in some log file someplace. Yeah, in D message or somewhere. That's right. So you got to grep D message to find out where what what version you're on. Yeah. yeah. So, chat. Whoever comes up with the first uh, command that'll that'll tell us what command version, line that tells you what version, version you're GTK. running. Yeah. What's easier? What would be easier it's, would be to at least I think is to figure out what your what GCC you're running. So, what oh, version yeah, that, GCC? I've GCC seen that before, and I can't remember yeah. where it is. So, yeah, Google terminal version. Oh yeah, very good. <laughs> very. They had an inventive bunch in there, yeah. So, yeah, I'm running Chrome 22 is what's on my uh, LMDE box, but uh, then I didn't do today's update, so that may change it. So, so we've uh, found another use for a Raspberry Pi. Um, the uh, I guess the U.S. Federal Trade Commission told the public that it would give fifty thousand dollars to anyone who could devise an effective and convenient way to stop telemarketing robocalls. Um, when they did that, they got 700 uh, would-be inventors sent their stuff in. And among those was Alex Ruiz, who's a 24-year-old Linux sysadmin from California. And he saw a way to, to use the Raspberry Pi to do this. And so he, he built this system that is wrapped around a Raspberry Pi, telephone adapter, and a network switch and that uses whitelisting to let... Um, legitimate calls go through while it while it blocks kind of the telemarketers uh, so the winners haven't been uh, announced yet but uh, his solution he calls it the banana phone and it's on it's it's after video and it it acts as a, um, a the pi acts as the communication server sitting in between the phone line and and the uh, and it go, runs out to the database and figures out kind of where it's coming from so it it converts the landline call into a, a VoIP traffic, and then the network switch lets the Pi and the um, telephone adapter communicate with each other. So uh, it's it's really kind of a cool idea. So I guess um, the what users have to enter a four-digit authentication code to prove that they're human, and then that passes the call onto a live line with the, and the validated caller ID stored in a whitelist and. And uh, so friends kind of only have to type in uh, uh, the code one time. So um, now, and I guess, so on the Pi, he's run, he's actually running asterisk PBX uh, software and, and stuff. So it's, he's running a, a lot of stuff on this Pi. I wouldn't have thought that you could do all that with the Pi. He's got MySQL running on there and, and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's really a very cool um application uh, if you get a lot of robocalls now you can also put your name on the the no call list and i found that actually works reasonably well as well we don't get a whole lot of of uh, these telemarketing calls but 
yet another great place to put a Raspberry Pi. And how cool is it that you've got a computer screening your calls for you and, and won't let the bad people through? So uh, this is a very neat story. I thought it was just another great example of what people are doing with these pies. And it's just um, it's just amazing. You know, we've talked before about going out to raspberrypi.org and just looking at what people are doing. It's pretty incredible. And the Google Plus really is astounding. The yeah. Google Plus Raspberry Pi community is another place that you can go just peruse and see what people are doing. It's it's pretty amazing. So, so our, indeed it is. So our next story, and we're a little late on this one, so we do apologize. Is that uh, KDE four point one zero got released uh, about a week and a half ago? And <sighs> oh no no no. no. <sighs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, I was going to sleep there for a minute. It, it it actually is. There's quite a bit of stuff in in this new release, and um, it's actually pretty cool. We're going to link to an article out on the the H open, or as they say in Britain, the H open. The H open. The H yes, open. Indeed. Um, That's right. Which is actually a German. Uh, <laughs> I think this is where Fab works. German actually. website. Yeah. Um, At H open. Yeah. yeah, I think he works yeah, for H open now. Be. But um, Annika Kern. Uh, Carer or Kierer wrote a great article, uh, kind of detailing a bunch of the stuff that is new and improved in uh, KDE 4.10. They did a bunch of different work. Um, they actually talk about the fact that that KDE is the four the four point four uh, since version 4.4 KDE is basically made up of three main aspects, and that's the KDE applications. We talk about those all the time: Caligra, Marble, stuff like that. The KDE workspaces, which is uh, uh, get its core of like plasma work environment and widgets and stuff. And then um, the KDE platform itself, which is the backend components, um, Akinati, uh, KDE libraries, and the KDE SDK. And so a lot of the work on this one has happened towards the backend, which is great because they're basically, you know, KDE's always had a reputation for having a lot of bugs, having a lot of configurability, but having a lot of bugs. And they're really concentrating on cleaning those up. But they also took advantage of a number of different uh, Google Summer of Code uh, contributions that people have. And in this article, they even talk about the individuals who uh, who did some of this work on things like Marble and the Kate text editor, which is a really nice advanced text editor, um, Kmail, Ktouch, and uh, uh, really some some interesting stuff there. Ocular as well. Um, and some of the work that they did in Kate actually shows up in Kwrite, which is obviously their their uh, word processor from the K Office suite. Uh, some great stuff on the back end as well. And um, so it's a lot of it is a move to QML uh, away from um, uh, other thing other um, other programming languages from C to QML a couple other things in that direction and QML actually has a lot of promise with with Qt in terms of uh, uh, and I think they're starting to realize some of that promise in, in the stuff that they're doing here uh, they also did some back thing back end things with the Nepomuk um, semantic desktop and we had talked before when we talked about KDE way back about uh, disabling uh, Nepomuk and desktop indexing and um, Strigi, which is the uh, which is the file indexer or was the file indexer and it's actually been replaced in um, the the new version 4.10. They've um, they've replaced it because the Strigi C++ library had uh, had some issues that would continually cause difficulties um, with various common document types. And, um, and the, I guess the code base was pretty difficult to maintain. So um, some good stuff there on the back end. Uh, so we are going to, we're going to include a, um, a link in the show notes, not just to this article, but also to 
um, a quick article, and let me see, let me give proper credit. It's out on a site called New Noobs Lab. So great place for noobs, I guess. And it tells you how to install it in the current versions of things like Ubuntu 12.10, 12.04, uh, Mint 13, and 14. And it's as easy as, uh, as activating the um, Kubuntu backports. And so I did this this afternoon on my my uh, Min 14 KDE VM that I have uh, on my Windows box at work. And it was pretty clean and dry, not not a whole lot to it. Installed a bunch of stuff, and it looks pretty cool. So um, if you're a KDE user, I would recommend it heading up to uh, 4.10 if that's, that's your speed. So um, have at it. Cool. Yeah. I think I'll pass. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm not very adventuresome when it comes to this kind of stuff. That's you know, okay. I'm sticking with my cinnamon desktop that I like a lot. There you go. So. I'm not dead. What? Nothing to use, you know. I said, I'm not dead. Yeah. He said he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. So... Thinking, <laughs> speaking of things that are not dead, that are not dead. You know, it was either that, it was either that little clip or some kind of zombie clip, because the story came out this week that the Vivaldi tablet is not dead yet. So um, Aaron Saigo, who you guys may recall, was very active with KDE with Plasma Desktop uh, and working for the KDE folks for a long time, and then last year. Uh, stopped working for KDE and was working heavily to try and bring what they originally had titled as the Spark tablet to market uh, with Plasma, with the KDE Plasma Active desktop on it. They ended up having to change the name to um, the Vivaldi over some trademark issues. But, um, you know, they got really close. They actually had a prototype. They had, uh, you could actually go buy the, um, the tablet from the Chinese company that was making it. And people were then installing developer versions of uh, the Vivaldi operating system on it. Well, they ran into problems and it ended up not bringing it to market. Well, it's back now. And basically, they've stepped all the way back and have designed uh, the the board and the uh, components for this from the ground up. They chose uh, chipsets and wireless uh, chips and things along these lines and then actually designed a board and are having it manufactured so that they can actually control the manufacturing process and choose open hardware as well as open software. And this was a goal that um, that Aaron had talked about even when I saw him give a, a talk on this at Linux Fest Northwest last year. So he is actually now looking to potentially launch uh, and bring this to market by sometime late in the spring, early summer. So they're talking about the May timeframe, but we all know these things take time. And I think, you know, my feeling is that they're much wiser about what they're going to encounter when they um, when they come they come around to uh, to trying to bring this thing to market. So it's probably going to be, um, you know, they, I, it feels like they have a better shot of of completing of sealing the deal and actually actually getting these things out. And this, as you guys may recall, this was a pretty compelling device. It was the specs on the originally were a little underpowered and, um, you know, not not, um, you know, knocking people off their feet. But they're not even talking about the specs yet. Uh, Aaron has said that there's a few more things that need to happen and then he's going to be able to start talking quite a bit about them 
about it, and we'll probably have more news stories as that happens. But if that's something you're interested in, keep your eyes on this space. It seems there's lots of, of Linux tablet stuff going on um, around and about because uh, our next uh, story is about a Linux tablet as well, the uh, the PengPod. Um, and this was an Indiegogo uh, thing that, that uh, what came up, I don't know when this was active. Uh, anyway, they were looking for, I think, um, $50,000 to to uh, put together a, a full Linux tablet free of kind of Android restrictions. And and so they needed to do some new so- software and, and integrate some existing stuff and and really get it. It, it was mainly um, just to get, you know, clear a clean Linux install. Well, they raised, um, what, $72,000, it says, according to the, uh, the PengPod website. And their, uh, their blog seems to, to say that they're uploading images and they're getting to, to just about be ready to go. They, they're looking to, uh, to be shipping, um, uh, stuff by the end of the, the month, end of February. So, uh, it looks like that's actually going to happen. Um, I don't know that they're shipping tablets. They're certainly shipping code anyway. Well, they've shipped. Um, they've actually shipped to people who were supporters on Indiegogo. They've actually sent stuff out to those people, um, about eighty plus or something like this. So now they're into. Uh, okay. They're actually taking pre-orders for the devices. They actually have a ten-inch tablet, a seven-inch mm-hmm. tablet, and then they have a computer on a stick little device. And so. Um, they're, like I say, they're taking pre-orders on those. They expect to be shipping them soon, and they have actually shipped working units to um, to people who supported them on Indiegogo. So, yeah, that's very cool. It'll be interesting to see kind of how much of this takes off, and and you know whether people are are willing to. You know, is it just Linux enthusiasts that are going to go out and get these things, or are we going to see? Um, you know, these things starting to show up in stores that, because, you know, when people pick a tablet up, they're much less tied to the notion of, well, I got to have Windows. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just whatever the tablet is, that's what it is. And that's what has been the success of Android is that it hadn't really mattered that it was Linux, that people just saw it as the, the thing that this tablet does. So, you know, a, a completely open Linux tablet might be, an interesting, um, interesting foray into Linux for people who would otherwise wouldn't bother. Yeah, and as you're probably aware, we've mentioned this before before we got on the air. Um, Ubuntu has some sort of secret announcement coming out tomorrow, which everybody—it's not so secret that they're going to come out and talk about a tablet. Um, they're they're teasing this out, not unlike they teased out their Ubuntu phone uh, announcement with a countdown timer on their web page, uh, but it's it's. <laughs> it's pretty much an open secret that they're going to be talking about a tablet and it, what what's going to, it's, I would pay attention to it. If you guys uh, have any interest in this, just to what they say and where, you know, when, what I'm really interested with Ubuntu and we'll, we'll talk more about them in some future episode, but um, is when they're, when they're looking to come to market, do they have partners? You know, is this something that's coming to market? And if in fact the case is that Ubuntu has partners and they have a ship date or they're taking pre-orders, or they have a target date to get this thing to market with that partner, 
that's a big announcement and that's that's a big deal and would play favorably towards both this story and the, yep. the Vivaldi and um, the Tyson story we talked about earlier. I think um, I think that would all all be, uh, uh, you know, just good news in the tablet space uh, for people who are Linux enthusiasts. Yep, their their website actually says TikTok tablet time. Yeah, so they're not really trying to. So they're not even really trying to hide. Well, it could be just a version of Ubuntu running on, you know, a, another like a commercial tablet. Now I know that people have gotten but... it running on like the Nexus Seven. So yeah. So um. So that wouldn't be worthy of such a big news. No, and that's a hack. And unless you have um, does Samsung build the Nexus Seven or Go- who builds that for Google? Do we know? Whoever, I'm not sure. I mean, no. you'd have to have a, a what would be a news and in with the hardware. Yes, yeah. exactly. That you're that you're doing something like yeah. that. So, so yeah. I think it would be. I think that would be interesting. So, we have made it down to the last story in this never-ending news docket, and you guys can never yeah, you can see why docket, we we yeah. decided that this was going to be what we were going to talk about tonight. So, in our last story, and some of you guys have already seen this, and it's probably something that you're you've heard about because it's about a week old, and that's that um, Steam for Linux is out of beta now and is is available for everybody. And and to celebrate, um, Steam is holding a bake sale of, of Linux applications and Linux uh, games. And if you're listening, so we're recording this on the 18th. I think a big chunk of those uh, games are on sale till the 21st. Some of them yeah, might... Three more days. Yeah, think, yeah, some stuff might run through the end of the month. And my feeling is if you're anybody who's gone out to the Steam store on a regular basis, they sort of rotate through different stuff that's on sale. But they have some fantastic prices out there right now for Linux games. And they have their entire Linux catalog is on sale. Everything's on sale at one at one price or another. And if you guys had an opportunity, if you're, if you're listeners to the Linux Action Show... A couple ex- episodes ago, they did a review of some of some Linux games. Uh, Chris picks them out, and he played a few of them. Some of those games are abs- are on sale right now uh, in the Steam store. Things like Faster Than Light, or um, let's see, I bought uh, Killing Floor because I like first person shooters, so that's a zombie first person shooter. Um, let's see, I also bought. I had to buy Half Life Two. I know somebody mentioned that earlier in the chat room. Uh, had to go out and buy that because it was like $2.99. And, you know, as we've talked about before, this is one of the best uh, games that uh, was ever made. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a little yeah. it's a little dated now, but it absolutely was. Um, I see Mock Turtles talking about Trine. Uh, I know, uh, I think that's on sale up there. Trine 2 might be up there as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a fair number of them up there, and it keeps getting bigger. And, uh, you know, so if you're if you're somebody who likes to game, and you guys know I, I enjoy doing that, and I'd love to do more and more of it on on the Linux side, especially since I hammered that Windows partition on the podcasting box. Podcast <laughs> so, last time. <laughs> so, um, you know, go out to Steam and and grab this stuff, and and uh, and you know, support Steam on Linux. Uh, you know, I think it's this is to me this is important as important as you know the sort of the support that people showed for the humble and the bundles when when they came out. Um, and uh, you know, these yeah. guys have partnerships with. If you've bought humble bundles. They are available through Steam, so you can actually. Yep. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Yep. You just I downloaded that stuff on the yep. on the Windows side when it came out, so I haven't now I have to go get it on the just, Linux yep. side. Yeah, go too. get it. Yeah. You can actually activate um, per purchase. So, it, like, if you bought one of the like, say, you bought the Frozen Byte bundle, that was an old one. Um, yeah. You just you activate the entire purchase, and any games that are available already will become you can you can 
load them through Steam. So um, some good stuff there. So anyways, uh, let's let's go out and support them. I think we're getting some great um, some great advantages from this. The the drivers we've already talked about the Nvidia drivers and the work that's been done there. Some great yeah. work has been done on the Intel drivers, which really makes a difference, particularly for people who have the newer Intel chips, the uh, Ivy Bridge and Sandy Bridge chips that have video built into the CPU. Um, mm-hmm. You're gonna get you're gonna get good driver support. Uh, through Linux, and a lot of that is a result of what Valve is doing uh, to bring to bring uh, Steam to Linux. So this yeah. is something we've been asking for for years. So let's let's get out there and support it. Serious Sam three eighty percent off. Yeah, that's I, and that's even less than I paid like ten bucks yeah. for it this two eight, two no. or three months ago on the Windows yeah. side. When I logged into Linux, there it was available. I downloaded it yeah. on the machine. I've told you guys I played it. It looks great. So. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, anything you've bought for any platform on Steam, if there's a version available for Linux, you can just download it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, you don't have to to buy it again if you already own it. Nope. So good stuff there. So anyways. very cool. Very cool. Got to get in and do that. Get in and do it. So that is it for the news docket. We actually, as I mentioned at the at the start of the show, we have some great feedback that we're going to step into. Some of it's a little long, but I I think that uh, the points that you guys made when you wrote in uh, are are excellent. So we're gonna we're gonna hop into that right now. So we're actually going to start off with we we continue to get comments on episode 145, which was our freedom episode. Uh, I think this is a, a hot topic that people um, have a lot of strong opinions about. And so we actually got a comment written in by AC. I'm going to read this out. Originally, I was going to paraphrase it, but AC did such a great job that I, I want to read through this. And I think you guys will appreciate it. So he writes in and says he or she writes in and says, When people like Stallman and the Free Software Foundation talk about free software, they often confuse people by pushing an agenda rather than educating people. E.g., the first thing that people need to understand is the idea of the tragedy of the commons, i.e., the idea that natural resources cannot be in the public domain freely shared because the rational response of people is to rapidly deplete free resources. If the fish in the lake on common land are free, then you better get there quick and get your rod in the water before they are all gone. When they are all gone, there is little incentive for anyone to restock the lake. Stallman came from a time before software licenses. Companies like IBM sold very expensive hardware and free and open software because the hardware was useless without it and customers wanted to, compromise, wanted to customize software to their own needs. With no concept of a software license, all software was in effect public domain. Why no tragedy of the commons? In in the small community of programmers without proprietary software, there was little competition other than intellectual competition between developers and powerful incentives to share code. By sharing code, everyone was made better, made better software, and thus everyone benefited by getting better jobs, conditions, pay, etc. However, in the same way that the arrival of the Europeans ended the Native Americans' orgy of freedom, wow, that would be a good show title, or a band name. Anyways, uh, so the software <laughs> license destroyed the original hacker community. Why share software when your hard work could be taken and profited from by individuals who wouldn't give back to the community? The tragedy of the commons was now in effect with depleted natural resources being the supply of public domain software. Stallman's solution was the anti-license, a license that forced sharing. Thus, Libre licenses defeat the tragedy of the commons and enable a sharing hacker community once more. 
In a free society with small government, anti-competitive corporations would not exist. Thus, Libra software would dominate because it is very hard for proprietary to compete with free except in small niches. Thus, word processors and spreadsheets would be free software, while CAT scanners would run proprietary software. Individual computer games are niche software in comparison to LibreOffice, and thus they would mainly be a proprietary too. Is there something unique about software that means it should naturally be free, and moreover, that it is immoral that any of it isn't? No. Stallman and the Free Software Foundation are wrong here. They are zealots who have little respect for markets and do not even try and distinguish between competitive and anti-competitive markets. They regard both as equally bad, though we have lots of evidence that competitive free markets are a massive benefit to society because they allow society to constantly vote on what they want and thus structure the structure of production is built that is highly wealth generating for all of society because it is symmetrical to the demands of society. The error stems from the fact that many see business competition as a zero-sum game, i.e. business A exists to try and put business B out of business. In reality, a competitive free market means that businesses A and B compete to see who can best fulfill the demands of customers. If business A wins, it just means that business B has to change. If business B fails to change, then it must release the land, labor, and capital it is using so that more competent people who can better serve society can use these factors of production it would be immoral to allow business B to continue. There is a massive problem with copyright and license in society and has been for a long time. E.g. The, the Wright brothers were patent trolls that killed the development of aircraft in the U.S. by constantly bringing patent cases to court, even though they only had patents for a very small part of aircraft design. Everything is a remix. All ideas are built on prior art. Thus, my position is that only in exceptional cases should something be locked up for more than 10 years. Examples of exceptions could be drugs with long, expensive pipelines, logos, trademarks, and, and Libre software licenses. After 10 years, most patent and copyright things should then be in the public domain. What incentives are there for developers to keep producing free software, and is it sustainable? Clearly, free software is highly sustainable in the mass market, as there will always be a ready supply of hackers, some employed by large and small companies, to develop everyday software. I, you know, as you think that through, I was like, wow, that is... That's a great comment. Um, you don't necessarily have to agree with what AC is saying, but uh, I really liked sort of this idea um, where he talked about company A putting company B out of business, and thus uh, you have to return the the capital to more competent people. So think about um, how many text editors there are in in the Linux world, and do we need all these text editors or distros? You know, so the idea here would be. We vote with our, our downloads or whatever. As In a competitive society, we, we choose which one we like the best. And then the others or some of the others or the lower ones fall by the wayside. And ideally, those individuals who develop those put their efforts to some other open source project that and help to make that better. So I, th I thought yeah, that was the, a great comment. You know, this, this does, um, and AC is right in saying that this is all tied up in the the cost of things and and the um this ability to reproduce things for zero cost is what changes the um changes the equation and and it it changes this tragedy of the commons to where it it doesn't really work the same anymore and and so somebody putting together a a little text editor amongst the millions of text editors that are out there that nobody but this person likes 
Well, they really are consuming only their own resources, which they've really got the right to consume anyway. And so there's nothing to release where there would be in a, a manufacturing uh, environment where, you know, business B is, is you consuming land and labor and capital and doing it inefficiently. One of the things that, that and we, we decry this all the time about there being so many different Linux distros. The reason for that is because people like to make Linux distros and they don't really care if anybody else uses them particularly. So maybe a better example is something like a photo manager. How many photo managers are there? We did a roundup. There's just, there's a ton of them. Do we, yeah. do we really need all these photo managers? Or, no. you know, you talk about the nonlinear video editors. There's a ton of those. But, but so why do they exist? That's my point. Why do they exist? They don't exist because we need another photo editor. They exist because somebody or a group of people want to create a photo editor and that's enough. And they have control of the resources and they don't, there's no feedback from society about whether that's valuable or not valuable. It's yeah. intrinsically valuable to them. And that's why it exists. So what happens that is part, the, the, you know, that does fit in with the, with the example is that you won't get a big community building up around every one of those. So in a sense, the, the currency of the free software world is the size of the community that builds up around something. And that's where the resources, you know, people get behind a project that's taking off and all of a sudden everybody wants to contribute to it. But then we talk about GIMP and the fact that there's two or three people working on it and GIMP is huge in its install yeah, base. They, yeah, how do they do that? I don't know. Yeah, some of them just take off and there's a very uh, small resource and yeah. yeah, interesting. So we should probably move on. <clears throat> Yeah, well, so merely Jim wrote in on databases. Um, halfway through, there was a guy in the chat that said snore and signed off. Fine, that's his opinion. To most people, a database is invisible, separate, located somewhere over, um, you know, over there. And we need them because, ah, the guy with the beard says we need it. And the other guy who's designing our website is going to charge us an extra 70% if he has to do it himself. Last week, I got an email from Amazon. New programs going on where they're looking at what audio CDs I bought over the years and adding the MP3s to their MP3 cloud player. Uh, do you really th think something like that could be managed on Excel? Sorry, guys. It's obvious to you and me and the sysadmin and Bill MI why databases are important. For the rest of the world, they have no idea they exist. So here's me, real world. Here's my real world example. I'm going into work at Office Depot. When I get there, I encounter an LOL. Uh, that's a little old lady who needs ink for her printer. I don't know if you'd look for ink lately, but every business quarter, the printer companies come out with new lines of machines. They never take the same ink cartridges as were used the last quarter. If I'm lucky, she's written down the model of the printer, although she insists it's her computer that needs ink. And maybe the manufacturer, um, as I'm... Um, I'm bare of little brain. I pull out my Android phone. Um, it has the Office Depot app on it already. So I tap the ink tab and I select Hewlett Packard and then select the model. A second later, I get a list of cartridges with, with price and estimate for how many pages can be printed with the 5% coverage with skinny Helvetica or Arial font, not that fancy bold impact or German. The LOL walks away happy. She can print her greeting cards out or whatever she's doing. 
the pertinent information on what's contained in my phone, uh, what's contained in my phone, nor in the Office Depot app. It's on a database. My phone and the app just requested that link to a, a database somewhere, maybe at HTTP www.officedepot.com really doubtful maybe to HP or Epson or Brother Samsung it's possible with all the Oracle and IBM integration that our company has that my query could have hit server in California while the requesting server sits in Boca Raton Florida and gets relayed to me in Fort Worth Texas but without that repository of information everything stops this is why we were so freaked out over the Y2K bug it wasn't about our clocks being screwed up it was about what happens when these nodes of information can't communicate. So, yeah, the tip of the iceberg is always boring, Snore, but you don't define an iceberg by what you see. Very well done, guys. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was another great one. So Brian wrote in and said, uh, long-time listener and first-time commenter. Welcome to the show, Brian. Uh, yeah, great. <laughs> to the user in chat who asked if PHP My Admin works with MariaDB, I wanted to let them know that it does. He actually has a, uh, he sent us a shot, a screenshot of uh, PHP uh, MyAdmin uh, connecting to uh, his MariaDB. And he has an uh, Nginx PHP MariaDB. Um, I can't call it a LAMP setup because it isn't quite a LAMP setup. It's not quite. It's a LAMP. LAMP. Well, yeah. Well, no, it's LAMP. I guess yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's not. It's yeah. it's LAMP. Or something like because yeah. uh, yeah. you replace the A with an N. So, anyways, um, right. so he sends us a screenshot showing that that in fact does work because we were pondering that. As you guys recall, MariaDB is designed as a drop-in replacement for MySQL, um, and then he's and it actually shows as as well. It shows MariaDB, but then it shows that it's MySQL as well. So that was interesting. Yep. Yeah, he says, "I hope this helps keep up the great work." So we got a fine gentleman by the name of Robert writing in. Uh, I always like to hear from the Roberts out there. Um, Robert says, I enjoyed the podcast. The topic of databases is a hard one to cover in a short format program. Well, yeah, especially when you really don't know what you're talking about. Uh, did I say that out loud? Oh, well. Uh, but you guys did an admirable job. One aspect of SQL that you probably that should probably be included in the discussion, SQL for a database system like MySQL is divided, divided into three components. These components provide everything needed to create, maintain, and provide security for a relational database. There's a DDL, which is the data definition language to create and maintain the structure, the schema. There's the DML, which is the data manipulation language to maintain and query the data in the database. And then a DCL, which is the data control language to maintain security access to the database. I also wanted to mention the open source application DIA. It's a diagram editor which can be used to create data, create a database model. Then a utility program called TDIA to SQL can be uh, used to generate the SQL needed to create a database from the diagram. Both DIA and TDIA to SQL are available in the Ubuntu repositories. Creating a visual model before making a database of any complexity will allow you to generate a more robust and normalized database. And yeah, I've used DIA for other things. Um, had, had no idea that you could diagram your your SQL structure and and do it that way. So, and um, I think that MySQL takes those three components and and kind of merges or or distributes them among the client server architecture. So part of 
um, the DDL, DML, DCL is, is in the client part of it's in the server, I think, if I understood what he said anyway. I think that the DIA piece is really cool. You know, yeah. You know, DIA is uh, similar to Visio in, yeah. uh, for people who aren't aware of what DIA is. But here you can create, as you're designing your database, you can create your, your ERD or entity uh, relationship diagram and then actually use that program to convert the diagram into into SQL. Takes a picture and makes the SQL code. Yeah. That is too cool. Which is cool. Yeah. And I don't know, um, and maybe somebody in our audience does, I don't know if something like that actually exists for Visio. Um, you know, obviously Visio is used quite a bit in business, uh, but I, I yeah. don't know if something like this exists where you can do the same type of thing. So I thought that was really cool. So uh, obviously Robert, are- Robert would have been a subject matter expert that would have been good to have good, on our database show have on the yeah. database show so that could have substituted for me how it actually worked, or me or both of us yeah yeah, yeah. so, so oh, emails yeah i was gonna say uh, you want yeah, to grab we, that next one <laughs> yeah i'm i'm sitting here thinking now what's next here oh emails yeah so nigel verity and so this is information that, that uh most of you won't have seen uh, Nigel Verity wrote in to say, um, Hi guys, I enjoyed your review of database tools in episode 148. I would like to add my own views for what they're worth. In my Windows days, I spent several years developing applications with MS Access. Uh, when I made the move to Linux, finding an equally simple but powerful database development environment proved to be my only real problem. Uh, LibreOffice Base certainly provides a simple means for to create and maintain an SQL database, but its usefulness is somewhat limited. For the examples you cited, namely home CD or book databases, uh, base would be fine. But for business use, where a more sophisticated user interface is required, the form builder falls well short of access. Uh, you can create a crude but viable input-output form using just the built-in wizards, but once you have to start using... Um, LibreOffice Basic life gets starts to get more complicated or more difficult. Uh, there is no denying that it provides the ability to com- perform complex operations on the data and and the user interface. But compared with every other flavor of the basic programming language I've ever encountered, it is considerably more difficult to use. I would have to echo that. Um, HSQL is slow when handling large volumes of data. Uh, configuring base to interface with a different database engine, such as MySQL, is very easy and certainly improves performance, but you're still stuck with the limitations of the form designer. Uh, SQLite is conceptually similar to, to Access in that it does not rely on a server process and a database can be backed up or distributed as just a single file. It's very fast, can handle huge volumes of data, including blobs. Just about any programming language can be used to build an application based on SQLite. Personally, I use Gambas, which is very similar to VB. And for me, this completes the access analogy on Linux. But any other application builder could be used instead. Uh, Because SQLite is uh, fast, database lock durations are usually very short. So it's possible to place the file on a central server and provide shared concurrent access. You wouldn't support a large enterprise this way or an application with millions of records, but I've found that it works well for an office management application serving about 10 users. Uh, MySQL is very powerful and eminently suitable 
where large numbers of users require shared access. Being able to run stored procedures reduces network traffic in a shared environment compared to SQLite. Uh, but it does, however, require greater administrative overhead. And backup or store operations are considerably more complicated. Regards, Nige. So, yeah, that we didn't really... Well, I guess we've talked some about um, programming for LibreOffice. And I've tried to do it a couple of times, more from the uh, calc side than the database side. And it really is a chore. It's very difficult to do, uh, to, to programmatically access the LibreOffice tools. So, tough one. Yeah, and it feels like that's probably a place where they're going to need to get better if they really want to yeah. compete in the enterprise space. You guys would be surprised if you're not, uh, if you don't have exposure to this, how much programming actually happens you know you have vba which was uh, visual basic for applications that people would uh, use to program uh, in the office the microsoft office suite and yeah. it happens quite a bit in enterprise so th i thought that was a great um you know obviously uh, this is an individual who works with uh databases and, and made the move from the windows side into the linux world and struggled to find that tool and i think we've all done this with different applications for me right now it's uh, project management tools uh, yep. i'm struggling to find a good one that i that i like in comparison to microsoft project so um i appreciate that email i thought that was great insight and obviously something that i don't have because i don't do that kind of work so definitely appreciate yeah, it i don't do databases i've ran in i've ran into it with spreadsheets because you know at, at work uh you know engineers that you live in a spreadsheet yep. and a, a lot of the spreadsheets that i use are very heavy um, in with VBA in them as well because it's it's such it well the thing that Microsoft has really done a nice job of is that it, they've made it very easy to um, macroize your spreadsheet it's and it started off as a macro language but it's it's considerably more than that now we really really need that in LibreOffice yeah and hopefully that's where they're going in those directions when they started um, you know we talked about LibreOffice 4.0 and um, the API work that they're doing, the API cleanup yep. work that they're doing. And um, so hopefully that's the direction they're heading in. Well, Bill, Bill MI says, you know, just record a macro would be huge. Yeah. Um, I think they actually do have a record a macro feature in uh, LibreOffice. But when you go and look at the macro that it creates, it's almost unintelligible. It's very hard to understand, whereas the equivalent um, thing in, in the, the Microsoft world is much easier to deal with. So our last uh, email and our last piece of feedback on the podcast comes from uh, Aubrey S. Marshall, who you guys may recall wrote in last week to recommend um, Wink as a screen recorder uh, that we actually didn't talk about on the podcast. And I mentioned that I couldn't get it to run in my VM and decided not to include it in our roundup. Well, Aubrey writes in and says uh, that I want I want I have to start by apologizing to everyone on the podcast for recommending Wink on Linux. I must admit that I hadn't used the tool since version 1004 of Ubuntu. I made the stupid assumption that w the Wink author had been updating his software to support more recent versions of Mint and Ubuntu. Boy, was I wrong! It pays always to do your homework before recommending a tool and then having it flop. And so he said, when I heard on the podcast that you weren't able to get Wink to run, I took it. I took that as a challenge to find out if I could make it work. Uh, to be brief on the topic, let me just say it ain't going to happen, at least not for me. Aubrey tested it with Ubuntu and Kubuntu, 32 and 64-bit, 1204, 1210, Mint Cinnamon, Mint KDE, 
32-bit and 64-bit, 13 and 14, KDE 9 and 10, uh, KDE 0.9 and 0.10, uh, virtual and physical machines, all with the same results. Uh, errors uh, about conflicting LiveXPAT, DLLs and Deb and TAR uh, GZ installers that would fail. Even tried it under Wine and 32-bit uh, and 64-bit didn't happen. So um, he finishes off by saying, I really wanted to recommend Wink because it is a tool very similar to Snagit or Adobe Captivate, and I use Snagit at work, so I know what he's talking about. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have a demo recording to post as the work I did previously was for a corporate customer, and that work is proprietary. So once again, Aubrey offers, uh, says, I must offer my humble apologies. So no, no harm, no foul. Um, if it was something that you used and worked for you in the past, this is something we see. I ran into this just this weekend, um, yep. you know, with another, um, product i was looking for sort of challenges uh, ch challengers to you know sort of media centers not like xbmc but like plex if you guys are aware of plex and there was yep. called one called i think it's called media tomb and yep. uh i went out and looked at it because there was some uh there was actually a write-up on it in an older um issue of linux format i think from 2009 well right after they wrote that up the maintainer stopped maintaining and uh that's the last time they actually updated the code. So, you know, these things happen. These projects die. They release their capital back into society. Back into the system yeah, to be reused. To be reused. Yeah. So, anyways, this is, uh, you know, something you see. So, uh, but we definitely appreciate when you guys write in and, and uh, tell us. For sure, you know, yeah. Because, again, we'll and look so, at this stuff if we haven't looked at it. And I do have one. I don't know where I came across it. Oh, nobody wrote in about it. I found it. And I'm going to bring it up in a later episode because I there's something that I want to talk about, a screencaster that, that I just thought was fantastic. Yeah. So I'm just going to tease that out. I'm not even going to tell you what it is because we're going to talk about it in an upcoming episode. Later, yeah. yeah. So Bill, am I corrected me in, in the IRC? I would have bet money that LibreOffice Calc had a, a macro record button on it. And I'm looking in here and it's not there. Uh -oh. The tools, macros, you can run a macro, you can organize your macros. There's no record there. That That's astounding. I, I would have, I was sure it was in there, but I think he's right. I don't think it's there. Mm -hmm. So if it's hidden away someplace, maybe one of our listeners can kind of write in and, and uh, enlighten us, ed educate me and straighten me out as to where they hid the record a macro button. I'll have to look at that. All right. So on that mystifying note, uh, we, we are, we are going to wrap the entire podcast. We do apologize. There is no website or tip for this week. Uh, Beardy Jesse, we did receive your email and we're going to take a look at that and probably record, uh, include that in an upcoming episode as well. So we appreciate that. Beardy Jesse set us in a, uh, a tip. Well, it's sort of a website and a tip. And, uh, so if you guys have any of those that you want to want us to share on the podcast, Definitely uh, write in and let us know, because we will. I just didn't have a time to go in and verify uh, the one that Beardy Jesse sent in. So uh, thanks for that submission. So anyways, that is going to do it for episode 149 of the Mintcast. We definitely appreciate all the guys out in the chat room, those of you on the live stream. Again, you can join us at 8 p.m. Eastern on Monday nights. Uh, we're here. We usually have a little bit of pre-show. I was playing some some chill uh, groove music uh, in the... Uh, in the pre-show and uh and uh, we usually run for about 90 minutes so so come and uh um join us if you want to excellent excellent good having you guys here and yeah we'll see you next week thanks for listening
This has been another episode of Mintcast. The show notes for this episode are at www.mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org or leave voicemail at plus one eight three two five one four two two seven eight. That's eight three two five one four cast. You can find more information on Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco and Oscar for the podcast music, and thanks for listening to this episode of Mintcast. Dead, put a fork in it, man.